I'm Roger Citron. I'm an associate dean and professor of law at uh, Toro University, Jacob D. Fuchsberg Law Center. This is a Toro Law Review podcast, and our guest um, is Patty Salkin. Um, Patty is a former dean of the law school. Um, currently, she is the senior vice president for academic affairs for Toro University and provost of the graduate and professional divisions in New York. And she's going to be talking to us tonight about her PhD dissertation and forthcoming book on lawyers leading higher education. And before I take a breath, thank you, uh, uh, Patty, or Provost Salkin, I should say, for joining us tonight. Thank you very much, Roger. Um, so, uh, we always begin the podcast um, with a little bit of a bio um, of our guest, and please tell us a little bit about yourself. So, uh, as you mentioned, in, uh, currently I serve as the, the Senior Vice President for Academic Affairs and the Provost of Turo University, um, and Provost of the Graduate and Professional Divisions, in particular for New York. And uh, Turo University is a home to 19,000 students, about three dozen uh, schools and colleges in four states, soon to be five, and in four countries. And so uh, uh, it, it, it's an exciting adventure. There's a lot of things going on. We're opening up a new medical school in Montana. Prior to the, this position, as you noted, I was the dean of the law center. And you know, the one thing that I can't get out of my blood is being a legal educator and being involved in legal education. And so I still teach uh, my land use course um, at the law school. And uh, I'm the editor of the American Law of Zoning Treatise and the New York Zoning Law and Practice Treatise, as well as a handful of other um, annually updated zoning and land use publications. And that really is my uh, passion. So, yeah. Um, and uh, with so many students, so many schools, um, and for you, so many responsibilities, um, how did you have time to get a PhD? Which is another way of asking, why did you get a PhD? <laughs> so I, I think being in higher education since about 1990, um, it, it's always the uh, intellectual quest for knowledge and learning other things and making discoveries and part of uh, scholarly pursuits. And to be honest, you know, my, my background and my research is all in uh, land use and zoning and, and government ethics as well. Uh, but in my new role, I really wanted to establish myself as a scholar in higher education and higher education leadership in particular. And so the opportunity to pursue the PhD and to be involved in the country's first PhD in creativity um, and in the first cohort was something that was special and quite frankly, too good to pass up. Yeah. Um, the, how, can you just say a little bit more about how you sort of, you know, presented yourself to the program, um, that is to say, how you came within, I have to use the civil procedure phrase, the jurisdiction of creativity. Um, 
So, you know, I, I was looking at different PhD and EBT programs, and this one came across my radar screen, and it intrigued me because lawyers are creatives by nature, right? We are problem solvers. Um, we like to put the pieces of puzzles together. Um, we like the, the gamification, if you will, of, of trying to win our cases. Um, and you have to be creative. You have to outsmart the other side. You have to be precise in your arguments. You have to do your research. And, you know, so I was always interested in that and always interested, you know, in um, what the creatives add to society and also from a land use perspective. And this was just a unique interdisciplinary opportunity because no two people in the program were uh, alike. Nobody had the same backgrounds. Nobody had the same interests. And it was not just learning from shared readings and shared courses, but we learned from each other. And then we really had the opportunity to focus on our dissertations. And did, how did you, how and when did you come up with the topic for your dissertation? That is, did you always think it was a pretty straight line from thinking about doing the program to this is when I write about, or was it a little bit more iterative? No, actually, uh, to get into the program as part of the admissions process, you had to submit sort of a, uh, your pitch for your dissertation. So I was committed to this more than three years ago um, in, in, in getting there. And I had done a little bit of research, but honestly, um, what I thought I was going to write about just expanded exponentially once I got into uh, the research. Yeah, and one of the things I simplified this a little bit in the uh, in the introductory remarks. Um, this actually, your dissertation, you're you're still finishing it. I think we were talking about before we started recording, um, but it's also going to be a book forthcoming in the fall. And just so we have it, if you will, as part of the podcast, what will the title of your book be? Yeah, so so the dissertation is completed. It's submitted. It's uploaded onto ProQuest. I've graduated from the program. Um, but I've delayed ProQuest releasing it so that the book can come out uh, first. And the book is going to be called May It Please the Campus, uh, Lawyers Leading Higher Education. Yeah. So what I'm doing is I had to lock the data on the dissertation about a year ago. and But I've been keeping track of the trends. And so I've, I've been updating the data, updating the charts. And so the dissertation... Uh, when it's published and available to the public will be a year behind actually the new data in the book. And um, you uh, you shared the dissertation with me, and so I want to turn to that. Um, and uh, got a lot of data and charts, so good luck keeping that updated. Um, but let me begin with um, where you start, um, which is... Uh, the, the introductory part uh, in what you sent me is called Higher Education in Crisis. And what are the, the pieces or the components uh, of this the crisis that you described um, in the first part of the, in the introduction of, the, of your dissertation? So, uh, you know, it, it's no surprise in reading the newspaper. And, you know, I started this pre-COVID, right? And then COVID hit uh, in the middle of, of the research. But higher education is really uh, experiencing and reacting to major disruptions. Disruptions that include economic crises, 
Um, some of the economic crises came about as a result of the pandemic. Some of the economic crises came about as a result of the shift in demographics. And uh, around the country, most of the country, there are fewer um, middle school and high school students in the pipeline going into higher education. And then we experienced the time uh, nationally where I think that there's been a lot of skepticism about the value of higher education and the value proposition and, and a lot more young people choosing not to go to undergraduate education, which again causes problems for the schools. Um, higher education has become a highly regulated uh, business, quite frankly. And so, you know, way back when, you know, you could just open a school and, you know, and really part of the dissertation tracks all of the changes from the 1970s and particularly the 1980s in the rise of the regulatory state. And all of a sudden we've got all these lawyers involved in higher education that really were not involved in the business of higher education before. And so, you know, and, and some of this also I track and, and it's ironic or, or maybe sad. I looked at the president's mission report in the 1960s on uh, campus uh, unrest. And then, you know, if you think back while I'm writing the dissertation, all of the civil unrest issues that we've had in the community and on our campuses, dealing with uh, the death of George Floyd, dealing with um, racism issues, dealing with slavery issues, and all of the schools that have had to respond because their founders or buildings had names or roots uh, related to slavery. Um, and then prior to that, maybe, you know, in the last five, 10 years, there's been uh, a greater emphasis on First Amendment, free speech rights on campuses. We've had a lot of faculty union issues and staff union issues on campuses. And so, you know, all of these legal issues really that, that surround the campus, um, I think demand a different mindset. And yeah, there's a, a lot in your answer. The first thing I wanna make sure, um, when we talk about higher education, um, are you including professional schools in in your uh, in in what you're discussing and what you're and what we're talking about tonight? So uh, I I include I I limited my research to the roughly 4,300 classified institutions of higher education. So uh, proprietary business schools, for example, would not be included. Uh, in that list, but community colleges would be, um, as well as four-year schools. And I included uh, professional schools. However, um, just because I, I thought that it would not help in making the case, I did not include the private independent law schools, of which there's still about a, a little over a dozen. And those deans are by nature the dean and the president, um, because they're not attached to a university. But, but that would have been a constant number. Actually, the number of private independent school, law schools has decreased uh, over the years, but, but that still would have been a number that I thought would have inflated or skewed the trend a little bit. And uh, the, then the other thing, you know, I teach administrative law. And so there was one sort of thing that hooked me, which was we traditionally, at least in administrative law, you know, Think about, oh, 1980s, Ronald Reagan, 
at least rhetorically deregulation and in fact in certain certain areas um, of the federal government in fact deregulatory measures um, were adopted or taken and so it was interesting in the overview that you provided that you mentioned that in fact at least in the sphere that you analyzed that was actually a period of increased regulatory activity is that you know did i did i hear you correctly and if so why or how did that happen so you know uh, i think it started really in higher education in the, the 60s and 70s when financial aid uh, was really coming in vogue and when uh, veterans were coming back from uh, the war and there was an emphasis on all kinds of programs to get students into school to get them trained for uh, careers and so you know we saw a, a lot of regulation around financial aid then you know as we start to go on um, we saw um, Americans with Disabilities Act there were labor laws were continuing the U.S. Department of Education um, and the accreditation uh, business around higher education started to grow and lots of specialized accreditors grew to meet uh, the new programs that were being developed as well. Yeah, and then this is always, I think, an interesting question when you talk about, say, the last, you know, three decades or three or four decades of the 20th century and, of course, continuing into the present. Um, it's kind of a chicken and egg. That is to say, with so to what extent did lawyers um, you know, create um, a regulatory context or setting um, in which, you know, by and large, they would be legal type approaches where you'd really want to have a lawyer. That is to say, how much of it was, um, you know, lawyers creating uh, an environment that was more conducive to lawyers leading or, or and, you know, how much of it was this, this skill set that right. we've been talking about that lawyers possess as being as, oh no, you, we make sense given the changes going on to, to, to guide, to lead. Oh, you know, I don't think that there was any premeditation in terms of the regulations and that they require a lawyer to be the president because most schools had outside counsel. And another thing that I talk about in the, the, the paper soon to be the book is sort of the rise of the in-house general counsel at colleges and universities. And, you know, that didn't really happen until the 1960s. And then in the last decade, it has exploded. And, you know, most universities, when you look at the membership of the National Association of College and University Attorneys, um, it has exploded to, you know, five or 6,000 members. And so, you know, they may be uh, law firms that uh, provide services, but a lot of uh, in-house counsel, and, and honestly, that's another group that I track uh, in the research because there has been an increase in the number of people who have served as general counsel to colleges and universities who have then become presidents either of their school or of another school, um, and arguably because they're familiar with the business issues and the regulatory issues of running an institution of higher education um, because generally the general counsel is a trusted advisor to the president. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and today, today on college campuses, a lot of the general counsel um, are no longer called 
general counsel, they're called the chief compliance officer because we're living in a in a uh, an era where compliance is the buzzword. And you know, we talked about um, your application, and you had um, you know you had to make a sort of pitch about what your dissertation would be, what you would focus on. Um, what's as you did more research, did anything surprise you, or did it sort of flesh out along the lines that you foresaw or anticipated? So a lot of things surprised me. You know, initially when I proposed it, I had just been, it was more current. I was reading the Council of Higher Education every morning and, and noting that there were enough lawyers being appointed that in my mind, this was a trend. And I went to look to, to do some research and there was nothing. You know, there was a, one article in Forbes magazine there was a mention in the New York Times that at one point there were three lawyer presidents, but like nobody ever followed up with it. There's never been a story in the Chronicle or Inside Higher Education, nothing in the ABA uh, journal, um, although there is one now because of my research. Um, you know, I pitched a story to them and, and a writer uh, did something based upon this work. Um, there was also no data available. And so I think the, the greatest contribution of this project is that uh, in the appendices of the, the dissertation and the book will be the names and some data about all of the lawyer presidents that I was able to find. And I have to qualify that with that I was able to find because there was no data set to compare it to. So, so the contribution is all of this original data that allowed me to do with the empirical research, create these tables and charts and analyze the data looking at who are these lawyer presidents. So in the report, I talk about, you know, where did they go to law school? Did it matter where you went to law school? I looked at the, the decades that they were presidents, that lawyers were presidents to see, you know, was one decade better than the other? And quite frankly, for the last three decades, the number of lawyer presidents has more than doubled in each decade. So it's not just a one-time phenomenon. This is something that, that I've been tracking from a longitudinal perspective as well. I looked at what degrees lawyer presidents had. Uh, in addition to the JD, did they have any other graduate degrees? A bunch had uh, PhDs, EDDs, a number had uh, MBAs. There were also some lawyers who were doctors and lawyers with MPHs. And so, you know, I, I, that, that was just interesting to see. Then I looked at what states had the most lawyer presidents. And then I compared that, was it significant? I looked at the states that had the most number of colleges and universities as well. So I tried to keep the data balanced in the analysis to see whether anything truly uh, made a difference. I looked at public schools and private schools, community colleges, religiously affiliated schools. Um, I was surprised there were, there were a, a higher percentage of lawyers who were presidents of religiously affiliated schools. And again, that might be because of federal regulations and financial aid and being able to be true to your religious values and tenets um, and at the same time qualifying for uh, federal programs and financial aid for, for your students. 
I looked at gender, male and female uh, presidents. I looked at their backgrounds. I think the most startling discovery that I made, and you'll appreciate this because both of us share this background, the overwhelming majority of lawyer presidents had a, in their past were a government lawyer. And so I write about that and the, the skill set and the mindset of government lawyers and what they might contribute uh, to a campus. I looked at uh, other things in their background, like were they a general counsel? Were, were they employed at a college or university as a fundraiser? And did they serve on a college or university board of trustees? Because that was another trend that, uh, that nobody else had picked up on. But boards of trustees are the appointing authority for presidents. So some were appointing their own members of the board who happened to be lawyers because they thought they had a skill set. Some people who became lawyers, uh, who became presidents at one school had been on a board of trustees at another school. And again, it's the knowing the business of higher education, but coming from the outside. Uh, you know, I, I also looked at, at a number of other um, demographics. I looked at uh, lawyer presidents at HBCUs. And, you know, and I think that, you know, going from the civil rights movement and even to present, um, where we didn't have many uh, black lawyer presidents. And now that trend is turning around, not just at the HBCUs, but traditionally, that's the only place you could find them. And, and now I think uh, we're, we're seeing more, thankfully, uh, women and other underrepresented minorities uh, in the C-suite. So that was uh, nice to track as well. And then the, the chair of my dissertation committee is Paul Finkelman, who is not a lawyer, but he's been on the law faculty of probably half a dozen law schools. He's the former president of Gratz College, and he's now the chancellor there. He's a legal historian. And so he had me go back in the very beginning of the project to look at historically who were the presidents when the first colleges and universities were created in the United States. And he knew, but I discovered that they were either lawyers or ministers. And so I was able to, to sort of discuss that and tie in everything from the 1700s and bring it to present. Um, yeah, I know that, um, you know, and again, there's a lot of uh, different pieces in what you just said. Was there, you know, it, for example, in where did, you know, the, uh, the president who is a lawyer go to school? For example, anything discernible there, or was that no? The it's really the experience, not the credential, that mattered. I'm just curious to see if you can tell us anything more that that, would, that you sort of felt qualified as either a trend or a pattern in in, in these different things that you looked at. Well, it, interestingly, there was a correlation to um, like the top ten law schools in U.S. News and World Report. Um, had the most number of lawyer presidents. However, um, there were a lot of lawyer presidents that went to unranked law schools, you know, and, and second tier law schools as well. So, you know, at, at first I thought, you know, is this a position that is protected for the elite? And, you know, mm -hmm. and yet Yale and Harvard, you know, had, had its fair share in University of, of Pennsylvania. Um, 
and University of Chicago, but there were lots of other schools as well, and, and that's well documented. And actually, that was another place where I went to look to collect the empirical data. You know, I mean, how does one go about finding the names of over 400 lawyer presidents? When I started, when I pitched my topic, I knew of about 30 or 40, and I thought I'd find, you know, double that or triple that, but I didn't expect that I was going to find almost 500. And so, you know, I really spent the time finding them and then researching each person. I mean, there was a lot of, of historical research um, and legal history in this as well um, in, in order to figure out what those commonalities uh, or differences were among the, the various lawyer presidents. I, uh, and it sounds, I, I think if I, I mean, you went website to website. So as part of your research, there may have been other parts to it too, but you, I mean, this was, this was the internet version of shoe leather. In, in some respects, so, so the research started with, you know, a, your typical putting together your bibliography. And the bibliography, though, was a lot about leadership in higher education and the history of higher education. There's very little, as I said, written about lawyers in higher education. I, I think that there were like three public press articles. And then there were a, a few dissertations that talked about non-traditional leadership in higher education. And they had identified uh, a couple of lawyers as part of the, the, the five or six people or eight people in their studies. And so that provided some names. You know, then your typical, you know, search engine searches with keywords, just like you're doing a Boolean search on Westlaw or Lexis, you know, that yielded uh, some names. Then uh, when the pandemic hit, I was able to, with, with help from uh, some research assistants, sit and go through the websites of the roughly 4,300 Carnegie schools and looked at the current president to see were they a lawyer or not. And then a lot of the schools, but not all, had a history of the office of the president and the bios of the former presidents. And we went through every single one of them the names to see if they had a JD, you know, or in earlier times, if they were a lawyer, because some of them were presidents as lawyers before there was a JD degree, and, you know, in, in the early days. Oh. And, and so we, we captured um, all of those. And then I went to the, um, the Wikipedia pages of the top uh, law schools in the country, because they have typically a section on notable alumni. And they had alumni who were in higher education in the president's office. Again, not every, you know, tier one law school had that, but a lot of them did. That captured names. Then I uh, started talking to people about the dissertation and about the topic. And I would go to law school conferences and bring my spreadsheet with me that had the names in alphabetical order. And I would ask people at the ABA and at ALF you know, do you know of any lawyer presidents and who am I missing? And so it, it was it was non-traditional research, but the only way to collect this data, um, and I'll say that the only other related data set that was available, the American Council on Education does a study of the, the college presidency every roughly five years. And they put out a report and they have some demographic information. And in the last 
couple of reports, they noted the degrees that the presidents had. And so I could see the percentage of lawyers who were presidents, but their survey pool was only 1,600 schools. And it was the people who responded from that uh, survey pool. And while they shared some of their um, aggregate data with me, they would not share the names of the presidents or the names of the schools that had lawyer presidents because they, uh, they didn't want to do anything that would appear to compromise the anonymity of their uh, survey, you know, because they promised they, they thought they had to keep that confidential. So again, there, there was nowhere to turn because nobody had a list. And so to me, that's the coolest contribution that, that a list has been created. Um, I have a website that is in beta that when the book comes out, it will go live. And so all of the data will be there for the public. And, and honestly, I'm hoping that people who are interested will look to see if their name is there or if the name of somebody that they know is there. And, you know, I, I, I only expect that the list is going to grow. Yeah, no, this is, um, as someone who rarely, in fact, uh, maybe even exclusively does sort of the traditional, you know, type of whatever research and writing, what you've done is, I mean, truly incalculably, incalculably invaluable in, in um, you know, planting a tree, if to, to mix metaphors, um, so that, you know, there's this, there's this really way to think about, or at least try to understand in a comprehensive rather than anecdotal way, um, you know, what this, what this looks like, what this area looks like. Um, so uh, uh, <laughs> there's gonna be a lot of people standing on your shoulders <laughs> with what you've done. I hope so. Another thing that I looked at that I, I didn't mention is I looked to see who was coming from inside academia and who was from outside academia. And, you know, the, the traditional view is that yes. the, the people that are college and university, they sort of rose up through the ranks of the academy. So, you know, they, they uh, got their PhD, they became a postdoc, you know, they got a faculty position, maybe they became a department chair and then a dean and then they went over to central administration, you know, and all of this was the learning and the setup to, to be a president or of, of a college or university. So I looked to see, okay, why, where, where would these lawyers come from? And I tracked uh, in part of the paper uh, a little bit about the history of legal education as well. And, you know, and when law schools first started and when the explosion of law schools happened in the 70s and 80s, you know, and to, to think, you know, there was a time when we had, you know, three or four law schools, you know, and then we had 40 or 50 law schools, and today we have over 200 law schools, that's a lot of faculty, and that's a lot of associate deans, and that's a lot of deans. And so, you know, with, where's, where's the career trajectory for people that, that maybe don't stay inside of the law school? So I looked at how many of the lawyer presidents were law professors, were law deans, were provosts, or had other academic experience. And that other experience might have been there were a fair number who were political science faculty and business school faculty. Even though they were lawyers, they were not actually teaching at a law school. 
And and there were a lot of lawyer presidents who um, went from law professor to being president. They were not a law school dean, you know. And then a fair number again of lawyers who came from outside the academy altogether, not even serving on a board of trustees and not serving uh, in any other role, but people looking for the non-traditional candidate, you know, with business savvy and community contacts. And they might have been a government lawyer uh, in the past. The other, and which I do want to talk about with you because uh, of our government lawyer uh, experiences. But the other interesting theme in the paper there, that it's complex because there are many levels depending upon what you're interested in and you could take away from this. Um, there has been a trend in legal education to provide leadership training and leadership education for law students. And the paper notes a growing number of law schools that have leadership courses. And the American Association of Law Schools recently created a section on leadership in, in law. And so, you know, again, all of this is building on, you know, the creativity, who are leaders and, and what are the skill sets that we want our leaders to have. And, you know, lawyers have traditionally been viewed as, as leaders, but we never had any formal training on that per se, but now it's becoming part of the curriculum in dozens of law schools. Yeah, that's, we'll get back to the government lawyer piece, I hope, but that's um, because I think we both graduated law school more or less around the same time. We're part of the, the same era and absolutely there was no such course on leadership um, per se, like a classroom course um, on leadership. Um, so let me ask first, um, uh, since you've held a number of leadership positions, um, including being to the law school and, and your current position um, at Toro University, um, how did you develop your leadership skills? So, you know, I think that, that a lot of it goes back to uh, kinds of people that self-select to go to law school and be lawyers. I think a lot of us have been involved in the community. A lot of us have been involved in, you know, going back, thinking about high school and college, in student organizations, in various leadership roles. Um, I think a lot of it is on the job training. You know, part of, of what I think about in why is a lawyer prepared to be a college or university president I started to think about all the different roles and responsibilities that a president has. So one, for example, is you have to be an effective communicator. Well, unless you're a transactional lawyer who gets to just sit in an office and, and fill out papers and you don't really have to communicate with people, lawyers have to be good communicators. We have to be good communicators because we have to attract and retain clients in a professional way. And a lot of it is reputation. You have to, if you're a litigator, you have to have some charisma and some ability to communicate with the jury, um, you know, and with the judge. And so, you know, part of framing issues, you know, framing the message to the campus community. Uh, that's a lot of what lawyers do uh, in, in the communication skills. When I think about the business side, you know, I think about higher education is dependent on revenue and revenue comes from primarily from three sources. It comes from student tuition dollars. 
Well, that's not unlike a lawyer who is running a law firm. You don't eat if you don't have clients. You have to attract clients. You have to attract students. You know, and then on the business side, well, you have to run your firm. You have to hire staff. You have to, you know, have your supplies. You have to keep the schedule. I mean, a lot of, of things, again, it's simplistic, but a lot of things that a campus president has to do, a campus president has to fundraise. You know, that's the third source of, of revenue. Um, well, sorry, the second source, the third source is government. But in fundraising, you know, again, lawyers both have to raise capital and bring in their clients in order to, to uh, generate firm billables so that they can pay themselves and the people that work at the firm. Um, and lawyers also are philanthropic by nature and are involved in lots of nonprofit boards because everybody wants a lawyer um, on their board for for, for good reason. Um, and so uh, that that creates sort of the, the uh, ability, again, to figure out how to connect with uh, community organizations, philanthropists in the community, because they bring that to the table. And on the government side, again, uh, lawyers knowing how to advocate with state legislatures, county legislatures, the federal government, for resources for their institution, capital funds, um, maintaining financial aid, support other uh, existing government programs. And that's advocacy that lawyers um, typically learned in law school. And again, the idea that so many of these lawyer presidents were government lawyers, um, they know how the, how the game works, you know, and, and they know the mindset. And, you know, when you take a course uh, in college and state and local government, it is nothing like the experience of working in state and local government. You know, there's there's how the book says, and then there's the reality of being in it. Yeah, you know, the, uh, so your answer leads me to sort of rethink one of the questions that I was thinking about, because on the one hand, um, you know, you've given this very detailed answer about your, your own experience, as well as, you know, characteristics that substantially define most lawyers or that define many, you know, most lawyers. Um, I wonder whether there's, at first I was gonna say, oh, you know, there's a hole in our, in our curriculum because we should be teaching some kind of leader, offering some kind of leadership class. Um, but now I'm thinking, well, do we need to? That is to say, there's all these other influences, experiences, uh, possibilities. What are your thoughts? I, 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 I'm of both minds as I'm asking the question. I, I think it depends what the leadership class is and what the skill sets are. You know, another thing that I think that uh, some lawyers bring to the table, and that's important, is how to work in a team and how to collaborate. And, you know, I, I think back to this did not happen at Turo, but but in a, in a prior, you know, uh, course that I taught, I had the students work on projects together. It was a government ethics class, and I had students uh, take a different public official who had been convicted on government ethics uh, charges and related charges, and I had them build a Wikipedia page on each of the public officials, you know, and sort of do the research together and look at the crimes and look at some of them in the year that I did this, the Supreme Court was 
deciding a couple of cases that uh, really impacted whether a couple of people were going to be able to get out of jail. Um, you know, and so I had the students uh, rate each other because sometimes you find that uh, you have law students that have type A personality and believe that they're the best and they know how to do it and they want to get it done. And then you have law students that are more quiet and thoughtful and, you know, maybe not quick to jump, but but just as good on the, the, uh, the material and maybe even better because they've taken time to reflect and think about it. And I wanted to see, you know, I graded the team as a team, but then I wanted to grade the individual students. And so I had them all grade each other on a rubric. And it was amazing what I found out, you know, in terms of students, uh, in some cases, just believing <laughs> that there was no team effort because somebody else took charge. Um, yeah, yeah. I know that um, collaboration is certainly something, I think in the last couple of years, it certainly has more generally migrated into you know the law school curriculum the idea that um this is something we should be doing more with our students because they're certainly going to have to do more of it and and i think when, lawyers, they, when they graduate mm -hmm. and lawyers are taught to be honest and to be transparent is every single one that way no but we hope they are and, and we follow the rules of professional responsibility <clears throat> and so in, in many respects those are good leadership traits and qualities as well um, I wanted to let, let's let me, let me sort of come back to two uh, two things. The first was was there anything more about the government lawyer piece that we've left uh, we haven't discussed yet? I wanted to make sure that um, you know, as a former government lawyer, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that, that was given full full airing. Uh huh. Yeah, because you know when, when you go in, depending upon what office you're in. Many days you go in and your job is to react to what is in the news, right? And you don't know today what's going to be the next major issue before your office. You may have an agenda of things you'd like to address, but, but really you're reacting to what's going on around you. And you're researching the issue of the day, you know, on the front page of the local newspaper or the national newspaper. And that's not unlike what a campus president has to do. When there's unhappy faculty, unhappy staff, unhappy students, or something is happening outside that's impacting the campus. <clears throat> and so being able to be a quick study, being able to bring people together to figure out how to work through um, the challenge and, and what the messaging is going to be and how to give everybody confidence that they're being heard and that they're, uh, the issues are being addressed. They might not win, but but it's the idea of problem solving. Yes, yes. Um, the uh, and, and there's my shorthand for thinking about this, of course, is like the, if you will, the process piece. That is under like understanding that problem solving is a process um, is something that can certainly. I, I think government lawyering is conducive to that, at least in my experience. There's there's one more thing I want to touch on. Um, which, uh, which you which you did mention, but I want to make sure, like, in the same spirit that we gave it, you know, a, a full discussion, 
because you have a chapter entitled Women Lawyers Emerging as Campus Presidents. And you noted earlier that that was something that, you know, a trend that you identified that um, is occurring, seems to be continuing to occur. And any thoughts about um, why that is true? Uh, is that just part of the general, you know, progress that's been made, you know, in the workplace generally, not saying that by any means that it's complete or, or you know, done, but, but is, it, is it that story or are there other pieces to it too? You know, honestly, I think the story in large part, and again, I only looked at the lens of lawyers who were presidents, so the women lawyer presidents. And, you know, women were not part of law school classes in large numbers until uh, the 1970s. And it was still small in the 1970s. Today, it's just about 50-50. Some years, you know, it might be 51-49% uh, women to men. But I saw, so I looked at sort of the emergence of women lawyers, women in the legal profession. And that kind of tracked also, you know, with a little bit of a delay because they had to graduate and they had to get into um, their profession. But as the number of women lawyers grew, the number of women lawyer presidents grew. And so, you know, I, I thought that that was validation that uh, women lawyers, you know, in at least in this field, it was proportional to the increase um, of women lawyers uh, in the profession. You know, I, I looked at other studies. There was a, the White House project, which was set in Colorado, about women in higher education and women leaders in higher education. There's been a lot written about that, um, that there have not been very many women presidents in higher education. I think in the last, you know, five or eight years, that has started to change. There's been a, a much greater um, increase in diversity all around in the leadership ranks in, in higher education. All right. Well, um, let me ask, this is kind of the catch-all question. Is there any anything we've left unexplored? Anything that on a closing note um, that we should, uh, you want to discuss or, or bring our attention to? So I, I think it, it, it's a great question. And I think the summary here is for law students and lawyers, one of the things that we always say is when you have a law degree, you can do anything, you know, and that it's the, it's the, the legal education of thinking, right? We can always look it up, but, but it's, it's the, the training of thinking like a lawyer and that problem solving skill set and, and how to analyze situations and problems from different perspectives and, and putting the, the, the framing on uh, your argument and, and the emphasis on writing and communication and verbal communication, um, all of those things are part of legal education. And, you know, when, when you come up through a different discipline, and now, by the way, I make it clear, I am not suggesting that we should have only lawyers as presidents, and I'm not suggesting that lawyers make the best campus presidents. We've had, you know, a whole history of outstanding college and university presidents who come from all kinds of disciplines within the liberal arts and also the sciences. What I am saying is that in, in the past, lawyers were overlooked because 
the JD was not, you know, considered a traditional terminal academic degree, that there were not a lot of law schools that, you know, in the history, so there were not a lot of people in academia who were lawyers to fit that traditional pipeline that used to exist. You know, and now we look and we see lawyers, they're leading um, the Fortune 100 companies. There are more lawyer CEOs of Fortune 100 companies. And I, I mentioned that as a parallel because higher education is similar in many ways to a Fortune 100 company. You know, the larger the school, the larger the enterprise, um, the, the more things that the, the campus president has to be um, responsible for and aware of. So, you know, we tell students and, and people interested in law school, you don't have to see yourself in a courtroom. You know, you don't have to see yourself doing trusts and estates or doing real estate. We need lawyers to do that. And that's great. You don't have to be a prosecutor or a defender. You could run a business because, again, there's regulatory aspects to that. There's tax. There's labor law. There's business law. There's incorporation uh, issues. There's your employment uh, issues. You know, and, and then you could also do something else. And that something else um, is in higher education. There's a lot of something else. But again, just the, the big picture uh, issues, items. And I think the biggest takeaway from this is that in my dissertation, I predict at the end that by the end of this decade, 10% of college and university presidents, sitting college and university presidents will be lawyers. That's astronomical. The ACE survey had about 4%. And so looking at how things have changed and watching the trends of the increase in each decade, and I'll just take, we're only in 2022. So we're two years into this decade and we have 60 new appointments of lawyers as college and university presidents. That's not the majority of the new appointments by any stretch of the imagination, but it's significant in only two years to continue to see this trend grow. Yeah, no, I, uh, I know you crunched the numbers. I wouldn't bet against you on the, on the 10%. Um, uh, thank you. I, I think we'll, we'll wrap here. We'll call it a, we'll call it a night. Um, but it's been a pleasure talking to you, um, about your research and your work. And really, I, uh, I'm saying it sincerely. I can't wait to get your book. Thank you. Well, thank you. I want to thank the Eternal Law Review for, for hosting the podcast as well.